this is going to be a, a, I'll call it a challenging passage for us. And it's challenging in a couple of ways. One is because it almost sticks out like a sore thumb. Paul is in the practical application section of Romans where he is addressing what it looks like to live a transformed life. Remember the challenge from Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is that we are supposed to live our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, and we do that by allowing ourselves to be transformed in our thinking, transformed in our mind, rather than being conformed to the world. And so almost everything in this section on uh, practical application from chapters 12 through chapter 15, and really in some respects into chapter 16, is all about what does it look like to live that transformed life? What does it look like when you're living your life as a living sacrifice? And so he he actually dealt with um, maintaining a proper view of ourselves and and proper gifting in the church, meaning don't be arrogant and think you're more important than everybody else as part of living a transformed life. Because the world says we're at competition with one another. Another. You always got to be better than somebody else, smarter than somebody else, um, you know, more important than somebody else, more valuable than somebody else. That's the world's way of thinking. And he says, not in the church. We're to have the proper view of ourselves. We're to serve one another. We have gifts and abilities. So my gift of teaching is not any uh, more valuable than somebody who's got a gift of helps or, or other, other uh, gifting. Okay? He also dealt with how to love one another without hypocrisy. He talked last week about how to um, bless those who persecute you. Because what's the world's way of doing things? Man, they hurt you, you hurt them back twice as hard. Right? You know, they don't have that right to treat me that way. They don't have the right to talk to me that way. That might be true. But we have a certain way of responding. We're to bless those who persecute us inside and outside the church. And so he's dealt with those types of things, and that all makes sense. And then all of a sudden today he gets to this this section about submitting to governing authorities. And it sort of sticks out like a sore thumb because it almost sort of of begs the question, how does that fit into living a transformed life? Well, this week and next week he's going to look at this idea of our obligation or expectations toward other people. And this week, it's how do we respond to governing authorities. Next week is how do we respond one to another within the church. What is our expectation? He's going to say that our expectation next week is to love one another. That we're obligated to one another. So this week, it's really about our obligations to governing authorities. Next week is our obligations to others. What do we owe each other as Christians? So it does fit, because if we understand... What it means to live a transformed life will probably, will probably understand what it means to submit to governing authorities once we understand what's involved. So go ahead and turn with me to chapter 13. I'm going to read the first part here. In fact, let me go ahead and just read the whole thing. He says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have fear of author- or no fear of authority? Do what is good, and if you will have or and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you will also pay taxes for rulers and servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor, To whom honor? 
Let's go ahead and start at the very first part. Notice that the very first thing he says out of the gate here is this. Every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities. So he says every person, that's you and me, is to be in subjection to governing authorities. Now who are the governing authorities that he's talking about here? If you were to translate this literally, it would be those having or those holding authority. That particular phrase is only used here. It's never used anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. However, the, word, the actual word for authority is used all over the New Testament. And it generally refers to rulers. It refers to those in government. It refers to those who led the synagogues. It refers to church leaders. And even spiritual or heavenly domain, those in the heavenlies. And so this word for authorities actually has a pretty broad spectrum. Now, in this particular context here, it's pretty clear that Paul is addressing governing authorities, government authorities, or what we refer to as civil authorities. Now, there are some that disagree with that and want to say, no, no, this is only about spiritual leaders in the church. In other words, we're only commanded here by Paul to submit to church governing authorities. And the reason they do that is because they have this aversion to the idea that as Christians, Paul might expect us to submit to unsaved people. And that seems to be what drives that interpretation. Is that they just have this aversion to that. It's not something that they can come to exegetically from the text. The text here makes it pretty clear that Paul is talking about governing authorities. Later in the passage, he suggests governing authorities, things like talks about condemnation, fear of authority, bearing the sword. Those doesn't sound like the church, does it? Church leaders don't bear the sword. He says that the government is an avenger who brings wrath on the ones who practice evil. We don't do that. Well, not our church anyway. We don't bring wrath upon those who do evil. Paying taxes and customs to those civil authorities. Nobody, we don't have a church tax. We're not the Church of England. So we don't charge taxes. So it's pretty clear in the context here that Paul is referring to government or civil authorities. And that's not something that's foreign to the Scriptures. Turn to Second or 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 12, he says this. I'm sorry, we're going we're to start at verse 13. He says, Submit yourselves for the, sake, for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. There's no argument here that Peter's referring to civil authorities. He refers to the king, etc. So Peter says that we're to be in subjection to civil or government authorities. Look at um, 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, Paul writes this to Timothy, for, for, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So he says there that we're supposed to be praying for these civil authorities, these rulers, so that we could live a tranquil, peaceful life, which comes through submission. 
Titus chapter 3, verse 1, just one book later. Or I'm sorry, two books, two books later. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes to him, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. He goes on. Now there, there, it's questionable whether he's referring to church leaders or to civil authorities. Probably, likely, both. Now the other thing to keep in mind here is we know we have some two rather stark examples of submitting to government authorities and in fact submitting to wicked government authorities. One is in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself submitted himself to governing authorities, did he not? Did they have the right to execute him? Was he guilty? No, in fact, even Pilate sort of washed his hands of it. And yet, Jesus submitted himself to their interrogation. He submitted himself to their torture. Ultimately submitted himself to death on the cross. So Jesus himself, we have that example that he did, just what Paul commanded us to do, or is commanding us to do. We also have Paul himself, You know, it's interesting because Paul um, submitted himself to the Roman authorities to the point where he was imprisoned on multiple occasions and ultimately was likely beheaded as a result of his ministry. Paul subjected himself to governing authorities. So when he speaks here and he tells us to do the same, he's not asking us to do anything that he himself did not do. And so... When we look at, go back to uh, Romans chapter 12, when you, or Romans chapter 13, when you see every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, there's no way we can get around the fact that he's referring to civil authorities there. We have the other passages where we're commanded to do that through Peter and through Paul, but we also have the examples of Jesus himself and then the Apostle Paul. Now, what's interesting here is that notice Paul says that we're to be in subjection to. What's interesting is that's not necessarily the same thing as obey. Did you catch that? Being in subjection means you recognize the authority. It doesn't necessarily mean that you obey blindly all the time. In fact, I want to look at a couple of examples here. Um, the word that Paul uses to subject oneself or place, or the word that he uses here to subject oneself means simply to place oneself under the authority of somebody else. It's biblical, or the authority there, it's a concept, it's a civil authority, it's something you place yourself under the care or the protection of, you recognize the authority. Number of things here, 1 Corinthians, I won't have you turn here, you can make a note if you want to, but 1 Corinthians 16, verse 16, we're called to submit to spiritual leaders. Ephesians chapter 5 calls us to submit one to another. Slaves are told to submit to their masters. That's in Titus chapter 2. It's Ephesians chapter 5 as well. Colossians and Ephesians, Paul charges wives to submit themselves to their husbands. But what's interesting is you notice the passages there with wives never tells them to obey their husbands, but to submit to them. And that leads to an interesting concept And it's this, while subjection sometimes involves obedience, it's not one and the same. There are times where we are called upon to not obey civil authorities. And that does not violate the concept of being in subjection. How does that work? Let me give you some examples. Do you remember the midwives? What did the midwives do when the Egyptian pharaoh commanded that they kill all of the newborn children? Do you remember what the midwives did? They actually started hiding them. 
And in the book of Exodus, it tells us that God was pleased by their behavior. They deliberately disobeyed the governing authorities and did not kill the children. They hid them, and it says God was pleased by their behavior. Remember what Rahab did when the spies came to Rahab in Jericho? What did she do? She hit them. She disobeyed the governing authorities at risk of losing her own life. Do you think God was pleased with that? Pretty clearly, in fact, it was part of God's plan all along. Do you remember what happened when Queen Jezebel was trying to kill all the prophets of God and what what, uh, Obadiah did? He hid all the prophets in caves, disobeyed the civil authorities, the king, if you will. Anybody remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What'd they do? Remember what they what the what the, the king Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to do? What were they expected to do? What's that? Bow down. Yeah, they bow down to an idol, right? And what happened when they refused to do it? Yeah, they got put into the put in the oven, right? They disobeyed a direct order by the king. Daniel refused to do the same thing. We also have examples of Peter and John who disobeyed civil authorities when they were commanded not to preach the gospel. So what do we have here? We have Paul and Peter saying, subject yourselves to governing authorities, but there are times when they themselves refuse to obey. And that's because subjection is not necessarily the same thing as obedience. Subjection means that you recognize the authority. You recognize the position. And that position deserves uh, respect, recognition, if you will. And we'll see how this will play itself out because he's going to give us some principles here. So, when you look at what Paul does here, he tells us every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. He doesn't qualify that. He doesn't say, well, only godly government authorities, only Christian government authorities. He simply says we're supposed to subject ourselves to government. It's pretty clear. But the Bible reveals as a whole that there are exceptions to the rule of obedience. And that's that it's pretty clear that when those civil authorities command us to do something that is directly contrary to God's law and God's will, we're to disobey. We're not do it. How many of you heard recently that the Prime Minister or was it the Prime Minister or was it a politician up in Canada? just called out pro-lifers saying that they're completely out of touch with society and just blasted them. I'm thinking, really? (laughs) You know, killing babies, how is that? You know, but that's the mentality. Well, we stand in opposition to that, don't we? Because we know that killing is wrong. It's immoral. It's against God's commands and God's will. So there are times where our obedience to God will be reflected in how we disobey civil and governing authorities. But that doesn't mean that we have this right to simply reject government authorities or push them aside, and we're going to see that here. Yeah? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm I'm hearing everything you're saying. Mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time reconciling that with verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but but for evil. Do Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Yeah. I'm, what would you say to a Christian in North Korea? We're going to walk through that. 
Okay. In I fact, yeah. Getting to that, but yeah. It's, you know, but it's, no, but it's, and that's, I started off, I started off by saying this is going to be, I started off by saying this will, this is a difficult passage. Um, so, we have to work through it. I'm going to go through, um, I see, I think Paul draws out four principles that we have to keep in mind here, and it's not going to be as black and white, okay, because as we've learned before, there are times where God simply expects us to live by our convictions and live by the principles of conscience. And so there are times where we have to take the principles that we're going to see here today and figure out how to best apply those and how to work through those. And I'll try to answer the question there as to what we do, but let's look at um, the next few verses here. There are four principles, I believe, that Paul draws out to try to help us to figure out exactly what Dave is saying here, or what Dave is asking here. The first principle is this. All authority comes from God, including that of government. All authority comes from God, including that of government. Verse 1b, if you will. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by Him. So there is no authority except from God. Okay? Daniel actually said this to King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 2, he says, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked wicked king. The Babylonians were considered some of the most brutal people in history. We think of people like King, King Jong-un. Um, we think about Hitler and Stalin. Um, they had nothing on Nebuchadnezzar and the Assyrians in terms of what they would do. The Assyrians actually had this torture practice with their enemies where they would lay down stakes within the road, lay their enemies on it, and then run over them with chariots as a form of pleasure. Okay? Um, they were brutal, brutal people. And remember, God brought King Nebuchadnezzar in to take Israel captive. And yet David, or I'm sorry, and yet Daniel says, the God of heaven has given you a kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. He's given you power, he's given you strength, given you glory. Now this is earthly glory, it's not glory in the sense of heavenly glory. When he was interpreting the king's dream, he says this, chapter 4, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Then he goes on to say, Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So what David was basically telling King Nebuchadnezzar is, God has made you the king. Your authority comes from God. Now again, this was a this was a wicked, wicked man. You know, it's interesting. Jesus said to Pilate, or we see this reflected by John. Pilate entered into the praetorium again, and he said to Jesus, "Where are you from?" But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, "You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you?" Jesus answered, "You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above." For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Basically, Jesus telling Pilate, hey, God gave you the authority to do what you're doing. Now again, both of these were wicked, wicked men, and yet God had given them the authority. God had placed them into power to be king, in this case, um, Pontius Pilate. Kind of hard for us to reconcile that, isn't it? Because we'd have to take what he says here and assume that North Korea's leader is in the place he's in because God has placed him there. 
Now that's hard for us to accept sometimes. But Paul goes on, he says, God is the one who institute government authorities. Look at the next verse, he said, or next phrase. And those who exist are established by God. Notice that Paul doesn't say, well, they're permitted by God, but established. That's an act of God. The two passages we read above makes it clear that God had placed Nebuchadnezzar there. God had placed Pontius Pilate there. And so Paul says here that these leaders are established by God, not simply permitted. We try to wiggle our way out of it by saying, well, not God only permits them. The problem with that is it destroys God's sovereignty. Sometimes God raises up strong moral leaders like King David and King Hezekiah. He raises up many men like we've had in our past with our founding fathers and good presidents, good leaders. However, sometimes he raises up wicked leaders and governments for his purposes. Remember the book of Judges? How many times in the book of Judges did God bring in wicked kings, wicked people, as a form of chastisement against Israel for their disobedience. None of those enemies that God brought in were good. They were wicked. And yet God brought them in, placed them in authority for His purposes to discipline Israel. God raised up the Assyrians and the Babylonians to conquer Israel and take them into captivity. These were wicked people. But yet God, God, the text tells us God raised them up for that purpose. Peter claimed that the wicked leaders who opposed and ultimately crucified Jesus were raised up by God. Listen to this. Acts chapter 4. This is Peter speaking. He's speaking about Herod and Pontius Pilate here. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed Herod and Pontius Pilate. In other words, God had appointed Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Did you catch that? God appointed, raised up Herod and Pontius Pilate to do what he intended, which was ultimately to crucify Jesus Christ. To do whatever God's hand and his purpose predestined, for, or predestined, foreordained to happen. Anybody starting to squirm a little bit? doesn't make us comfortable, does it? So the question is, does this mean that God raised up people like Hitler and Stalin or Kim Jong-un? People who murder millions and millions of people. Those who are responsible for the most wicked atrocities this world has ever seen. If we take it at face value, it's hard not to say yes, right? Um... The thing we have to keep in mind is that God God does this in order to accomplish His purpose and plan. It's not just, well, God sits back and lets it happen. It's part of His plan and His purpose. Um, Most of the time, though, if you look at this, in fact, I would say every one of the times you see this in the Old Testament, it's a form of um, chastisement, judgment, Discipline, all built in to God's redemptive plan to lead people to salvation. Again, hard for us to accept and hard for us to understand sometimes, but that's the way it works. And the problem that we face is that if we reject this idea that all authorities have been placed there by God, if we reject that, 
what we do is we reject God's sovereignty. We say that he's not truly sovereign. There's a theological concept now called the openness of God. Uh, one of the uh, Bethel Seminary out of Minnesota, I think it's Minnesota, was a huge proponent of this. And it's the idea that God really doesn't know the future, therefore he doesn't control the future, that he's constantly reacting. So he's got this plan, but this plan is dependent upon the actions of man. And so when things rise up like Hitler, God's got to react so that his plan doesn't get impacted because he's still got to accomplish his plan. So it puts God in this place of simply not knowing the future, but knows where he's going to take the future, so he's constantly got to react to what mankind does and change his plan to accomplish it. Well, it totally destroys God's sovereignty. And it puts us in a similar spot today if we say things like, well, what's happening in North Korea? God didn't establish that. Maybe he permitted it, but he didn't establish it. But again, it destroys God's sovereignty. So the first thing we have to understand, the first principle that Paul says here is that all authority, good and bad, righteous and unrighteous, is established, not just permitted, but actually established by God as part of his redemptive plan for mankind. Okay, Let's go on. The second principle found in verses 2-4 through four is this. Those who oppose government authority oppose what God has instituted and ultimately will face judgment. Look at verses 2-4. and four, two through four. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now what's interesting is when it says those who resist... It's a participle. You've heard me mention those before, but it's this idea of something that's ongoing. And so the better way to think of this is a person who continually resists government authority. The one who sets himself up in opposition to what God has established. So it's not a civil or a single civil act of disobedience. It's the one who ultimately says, I have no obligation to civil authority. They don't rule over me. They're not established by God. They've got no authority. And so they set themselves up in opposition to that. But not only that, it says here that um, they're opposed. It's actually um, a word that indicates that they've sort of made their decision. They totally, completely stand in opposition to God's authority or the government authority. And it says that those individuals can expect judgment. They can expect judgment. It says, they who have opposed means a total, complete rejection they finalized it in their mind, will receive condemnation upon themselves. Condemnation there simply means judgment, if you will. Um, but look at what he goes on. This is the verse Dave read for us. Verse 3 says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, let me talk about principles here. We know that there are wicked leaders. We know that wicked leaders don't always, in fact, they generally do wicked things. They don't always do good things. I believe that Paul in this particular instance here is talking in a general sense. That God establishes government figures, government individuals, to guard against wicked behavior. And generally speaking, that's what you see. Now, the principle even applies in the case of some wicked forms of government. Now think about this. Even under this, say you're, you're living in North Korea. If you violate a North Korean law, what's going to happen? Whether that law is right or wrong, what's going to happen? 
You're going to face the consequence, the wrath of that government. Okay. Now, as corrupt as they are, um, think of what would happen in North Korea if there was no government. When people are left completely to their own vices, they each are simply their own authority. What happens to culture and society? We've seen that before the flood. We're a world filled with violence. And so I'm not justifying what happens in North Korea, but I'm saying even the most corrupt governments offer some protection to culture and society in terms of regulating, um, in terms of um, making sure that there's some order to society. Okay? And if you oppose that, you will face the wrath of that government. You will face Kim Jong-un's wrath. Okay? So Paul is talking here, in some respects, general principles. He goes on and he says, Do what is good and you will receive praise from the same. Okay? In some respects, if you do good in North Korea, now let's take the Christian aspect out of that, if you submit to the governing authorities there and you do good in the eyes of the governing authorities, what's going to happen? You will likely receive praise from them. Okay? Now, again, we're talking general principles here. Okay? Because in North Korea, obviously, if you do good and you worship God, what happens? Okay? But the same was true in Paul's day. Paul was preaching the gospel. And what happened? He was persecuted for it, not just by people, but by the governing authorities. And so again, what we're talking here about is general principles. Okay? It's not something we can take as just pure black and white. That, well, if you just do good in North Korea, you're good. Not necessarily. But again, he's, Paul's talking, if you will, to the masses. Okay? We apply it to ourselves here, generally speaking, as much as we don't like what our government does, for the most part, we obey the laws and we do good here, and what happens? What's that? Shut down. <laughs> you get shut down. You have to work without getting pay, right? So basically what we're, we're looking at here is what we find in verse 4. He says this, For it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in, or for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Even in, even in a place like um, North Korea, when you practice genuine evil, oftentimes there's consequences. Okay? Now, unfortunately, there's consequences for doing good sometimes. And so what do we, what do, we do with this? We have general principles. And the general principle is this. God establishes all authority. Good and bad. And the principle says that we're to recognize that and understand that. Okay? Which means that when I go to North Korea, I am to recognize that North Korean's, Korea's leader was placed there by God. He was placed there to do God's purpose and will. Part of that is to maintain society to some degree, not leave people to their own vices and whatnot. Um, and I'm to recognize that. And when I'm in North Korea, should I obey the rules or not? Even if I disagree with them, I should obey them. Unless it's a direct violation of a command from God. Okay? When the young man, um, what was his name? You guys remember he tore the poster down in North Korea? Ended up losing his life as a result? Did a stupid thing. Tore down a sign. Okay? Ultimately, he faced the wrath of the North Korean government. Now, was what they did to him right? No, not, a, not at all. But he violated a law in North Korea. He offended their leader. 
And he faced the wrath of that government. So, is it, is it as black and white, Dave, as you might like? Not at all. But the principle is that even a wicked government still serves God's purpose because it was established there to do a number of things, maintain society to some degree and rule and order. Um, because again, left unchecked, we know where that goes. And it can do that to some degree even when the leader is wicked. Now, that does not excuse what they do. It does not mean that we're to take this as black and white and say at a place like that, if I just do good, I'm okay. Because as we see in Paul and Peter and Jesus, that's not always the case. But again, he's talking about general principles here. How are we supposed to respond? We should do everything we can here with our civil authorities to obey the rules and the laws, whether we like them or don't like them, etc. We should do the best we can Play along, if you will, because if we don't, we'll face wrath. Will we not? So that's the general principle there. The third principle that Paul gives us here is found in the next few verses, sort of verse 5. We should subject ourselves to government authority as a matter of conscience. He says in verse 5, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, the wrath that comes from that government, but also for conscience sake. So he says, okay, if you don't behave, you might face the wrath of the government, the civil authorities. But beyond that, you have to worry about your own conscience. And this is a rather interesting statement. Our conscience is the mental faculty that allows us to differentiate, differentiate between right and wrong. It's what guides our behavior. Our conscience tells us when we're doing right or doing wrong, supposedly. Again, general principle. Some people don't have a conscience, right? They've so abused it that they no longer pay attention to right and wrong. But we're told that the conscience helps regulate behavior. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, it says that the writer there of Hebrews desired to conduct himself with honor in all things because he had a good conscience. Paul encouraged Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, he says, to have faith and a good conscience because some had rejected those things. A good conscience, and as a result, suffered shipwreck in their faith. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said a time would come where false teachers would be seared in their consciences, no longer knowing right from wrong, good from evil, and because of that, they would lead many to fall away from the faith. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warned that we could wound the conscience of an unbeliever when we do things that might lead them into sin. Which is a rather interesting statement. So the conscience plays a very important role in who we are and what we do. And Paul says that we ought to be submitting to governing authorities to protect our conscience. In other words, for conscience sake. So basically what happens? Let me give you an example. Um, we obviously are opposed to abortion here. Despise it. Right? And we should. So how do we respond when abortion is legal in our culture and our society? Well, we do whatever we can, obviously, to try to get the laws changed and the rules changed. But is it ever appropriate for me to take a weapon and meet an abortion doctor coming out of a clinic and put a bullet in his head? I mean, hey, we're preventing him from killing others, right? That's the argument. And that's happened. 
What about when we stand out in front of an abortion clinic and we start yelling and screaming at women that are going in to have abortions? Is that appropriate? Okay, I see some heads shaking. No, there are some who think it is. The problem is that in our culture and society, it's legal. And it's illegal for us to shoot an abortion doctor. It is, in some respects, illegal for us to to go up to women, get in their face, and berate them as they're going into an abortion clinic. When you have certain rules that have been set up, perimeters, what's, you know, where you can do that and where you can't. Well, what happens when we decide we're going to violate those and just pull the trigger? Well, according to the text here, we're wounding our conscience. We're, we're weakening our conscience, I think. Because now we're the authority. It's okay for us to do it. We decide what's right and wrong. And you end up... we. We know that murder is wrong. If we don't allow a woman to murder her baby, then what gives us the right to murder a doctor? See what I'm getting at? All of a sudden, our, our conscience gets all warped. You know, it's much like what Paul says in Romans early on here when he talks and he says, you know, you're judging somebody else because you're doing the exact same thing yourself. The conscience is messed up. And so Paul says one of the reasons we ought to subject ourselves to governing authorities is because we're saying, look, we're going to allow somebody else in some respects to regulate our behavior and in doing so, we help to protect our conscience. We don't become, you know, the, the overriding um, arbiter of what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. That we recognize God has placed the civil authority there for a reason. I don't know why God allows abortion in our country. I have no idea. But I can guarantee this, if you wanted it to stop, it could stop like that. Could it not? And hopefully, maybe God will do that at some point. But I don't have the right just to do whatever I feel I can do. And when people do that, they end up wounding their conscience. And so he says here, we ought to be, we ought to be basically submitting to these governing authorities as a matter of our conscience. Just recognizing God is the one in control. Another example might be, look at some of, the, some of the protests, like the Black Lives Matter protests and all that kind of stuff. You know what? It's never right for a cop to abuse his authority. But to protest that by busting windows out of buildings and by taking innocent people off the street or by deciding to walk up to a cop car and putting bullets in cops. I mean, that's just... But yet, how many in that movement think that's the right thing to do? Well, wait a minute, you're accusing cops of doing that very same thing, but yet you're doing it yourself and you don't see that they're wounding their conscience. No. Laws say we can't do that. So when we subject ourselves to earthly authorities the structures that God has established, one of the reasons that's there is God uses it to protect our conscience. gives us a sense of right and wrong, good and bad. Um, It sort of prevents us from just acting on our own and saying, I know what's right, I'm just going to do it. Because oftentimes in doing that, we lose sight. We do the same things we're accusing others of doing. And so it ends up damaging our conscience. The last principle we find here is in verses 6 and 7. It says, we are to recognize and support those who govern. That's what Paul says. The fourth principle is that we're to recognize these sources of authorities. But we're also supposed to support them. So those of you that were hoping to get out of paying taxes this year, sorry. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, meaning devoting themselves to civil service. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
In Mark chapter 12, the Pharisees and other leaders tried to trap Jesus by asking him whether it was lawful to pay Romans taxes. The Jews wanted to self-govern themselves. But they lived in a Roman society that paved the roads and provided clean water and all kinds of stuff, but they didn't want to pay for all that stuff. So many of the Jewish leaders said, we shouldn't be paying the Romans. And what was Jesus' response to them? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are his. In other words, pay your tithe and pay your taxes. But see, they didn't think that was right. Have you heard that? How many times have you heard these no-taxers say, well, the government has no right to tax us, and you know what? Pay to Caesar what Caesar's. Pay to God what's God's, right? Essentially, Paul repeats that command when he says that God's servants are devoted to governing. We're supposed to pay taxes because that supports them. Now, he actually lists four things here. I'll just touch on these briefly here. He says, render to all what is due them. And he focuses on four things here. He says, tax to whom taxes do. So we're supposed to pay our taxes. And that probably, if, if, in fact, if you look at the word Paul uses there, it's a word that refers to income tax or property taxes. It's what's taken from us. And we may not agree. We may say, you know what, they're taxing me too much. My property taxes keep going up. I don't like the fact that they keep passing all these levies, you know. Um, but Paul says, pay the tax. And that's the word that he uses here. Okay? The second word he uses is the word for custom, which is a reference to indirect taxes, like uh, duties, sales tax, fees for services. It's those things they don't necessarily just take from you, but if you use them, you pay them. So I go to the grocery store. That's a custom, actually. It's a tax that's placed on something I purchase. I don't owe that tax unless I purchase it. Okay? However, if I'm living in a house, I pay the tax no matter what. Okay, whether I live there or not, if I own the house, I pay it. So you have income tax or property taxes, those taxes that are levied on people. But then you have those customs. You know, um, you go and you basically buy a ticket on Ticketmaster and they charge you $1.50 fee. That's a custom. Okay? So he says, do that. Pay the taxes. Pay the customs. But then he says, fear. It's the same word for respect. Give respect to those who are supposed to be respected. In this case, it would be the governing authorities. We're supposed to respect them. I may not like a particular politician. I may not like a particular president. I may not like a particular civil authority, but guess what? I'm still supposed to honor them with, or I'm sorry, supposed to respect them, which means give them the proper respect that the position holds. I hate it when people refer to the president, whether I like him or not, in derogatory terms. You know what? It's the president. Get over it. That position demands a certain amount of respect. So, You know, while I I loved Ronald himself, Ronald Magnus, you know, um, Ronald Reagan, certainly if I got an opportunity to meet, I got a chance to meet um, Vice President George Bush at the time. And, you know what? Referred to him as Mr. Vice President. Okay? Not Georgie Boy. Okay? Now, when Clinton got into office, had I had an opportunity to meet him, do I have the right to just not refer to him as the President and to disrespect that position because I don't like him? Not really, I should probably call him Mr. President. Why? Because that's what the protocol calls for. That's respect, recognizing the position. When a police officer pulls me over for doing something I shouldn't be doing, or maybe he, you know, I got pulled over for speeding a while back because I missed a, a change in... It's an area going down to Athens where there's no indication that the speed changes until your, the sign is right there. And I got, I got popped for driving through. And um, I even went back and looked, there's no sign. Okay, But I had to treat the officer with respect even though I didn't think he was right. I think it's a speed trap. 
But you know what? When he got to the car, I talked to him nicely. He's just doing his job, you know. Respect. And so we're told to respect. The last one is honor. Give honor to whom honor is due. These civil authorities are placed there by God. It's a place of honor and respect. We're supposed to do that. 